Greetings, and, and uh, so this is um, the conversation with Esther Stanford Jose from the Racial Justice Networks Group uh, Collective, the uh, Race and Climate Collective. So my name is Sai Murray, and I'm going to be hosting the conversation today. Um, and there's plenty of people behind the scenes as well, which who will be jumping in and uh, um, if, if necessary. But uh, it's a great, um, great to be here. Great to welcome you and. Uh, I think, yeah, do do say hello in the chat. Let us know where you're from. Um, we also have a Q&A. So while Esther is um, presenting, um, you know, hold those questions and um, you can add them to the Q&A and we'll, we'll get to as many as we can. Also, uh, do use the hashtags um, 13 recommendation, which I'll explain for those who don't know what that is. Um, but also you can reach us on Race Justice on Twitter and the Racial Justice Network on Instagram. And uh, Esther's uh, hashtag on Twitter is Jose. So um, yeah, it's, it's my real pleasure to, um, to begin. Um, and and first of all, before I introduce Esther, I, I will give some background to the Racial Justice Network Race and Climate Collective. Um, so I will move through some of these slides. So. Uh, yeah, this is the agenda we have. So, so we're going to introduce um, Esther. Um, we're going to have a, a ten-minute break where we show a, a film which we which we created together with um, uh, Mama D's words, who will be appearing to close the event. And then Esther will be in conversation uh, with some prepared questions, and we'll have an open Q and A following that. Okay, so. Yeah, this, this group, the collective, um, I, I'm very honoured to be, be a part of this. Um, and, and it began uh, just before lockdown um, in 2020, which seems a long time ago now. Um, and, it, and it came about um, from uh, an engagement we had as the Racial Justice Network with the um, a Leeds Citizens Jury, which, which was um, a climate jury which took place in, in the city where we're located. Um, and there were certain recommendations made to the council of, of how to, to deal with climate change that we're experiencing and uh, going to experience and people obviously are already experiencing. Um, so myself and Panina were there speaking on issues of race, uh, connecting the idea that we must um, think global uh, and act local. Um, and, and we we this is the, this is what we've, we've done with our various organizing and networks and uh, this, is, this is some of the information we're sharing with the with the jury um so despite the recommendations that were uh, decided upon we, we continued this work and we, we held a a collective uh, conversation around climate justice um like i said just before lockdown with invited guests of mama d leon Seely huggins and, and real uh, quite quite a big room. Feels like a you know one of the the few big gatherings we had over the last year uh, before that. And um, you know we we really took the impetus from that meeting to to meet separately and to continue educating ourselves and linking with global activists around these issues. And these are some of the principles that we we devised and we came up with together. Um, around colonial legacies, around the, the importance of international perspectives, the interconnectedness of, of issues, um, solidarity to, to the people who are on the front lines of climate justice and the fight, 
and obviously solidarity to to all those who are victims and and who, who are who are on the brutal end of the hostile environment and fortress Europe. So it's it's, it's a great pleasure from that work and, and being in, in conversation with Esther for many years. Um, I think I first met Esther back in maybe 2005 or six, um, around a time when uh, Ngugi Wathiongo was visiting the university, which is a, is a happy coincidence following the conversation that we had uh, the previous week. Um, so since that time, um, um, Esther's been um, monumental and instrumental in many uh, pioneering um, actions in the, in the fight for justice, linking uh, the issues of ecocide and genocide um, throughout lots of lots of various different groups. Personally, I, I really admire Esther um, as someone who I think is able to to move between different uh, different groups, different communities and, and but really maintaining that integrity of a broader vision, um, a, a reparatory justice vision, which um, I'm sure she will go on to explain some of that, not the entirety of, of everything Esther does, because it's, it's a lot, but, but we're going to get a, a, a real uh, education, I think, and, 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 a, and a grounding in some of the, the links that, that Esther has globally, internationally, and, and some of the things that will help us all um, bring about the, the justice that we need. So uh, without further ado, I will welcome uh, my good friend, colleague, sister, and also uh, this is the, the first um, public facing um, event we've, we've held with Esther. We've, we've met with Esther at the Reparations March in 2020. Um, Esther came up to Leeds to um, run a, a reparations course for us, um, but this is the first event that we are honoured to welcome Esther as our patron. So, um, give it, yeah, round of applause, we can't hear you, but uh, I'm giving you a round of applause, Esther, and thank you very much for agreeing to, to, to share this space with us, and um, over to you. Thank you very much. Greetings, uh, thank you, Sai, um, Panina, and others, part of the Racial Justice Network. Um, it's good to get an opportunity to just do this session with you. Um, brief session. <laughs> I'm not known for being brief, but I've got a brief time tonight to just explore um, some points on our topic, reparations and the climate justice movement. Um, I'm primarily a reparationist, which is a reparations um, scholar activist campaigner. And so all of the work I do around climate justice is through the, the lens and the prism of the framework of reparations, which I will talk a bit about in a short while. Um, but obviously it's important for us when we're thinking about injustices and climate injustice, environmental injustice, racial injustice, you know, the multi-layered um, nature of injustice to um, recognize the importance of having that holistic uh, picture of what the problem is, um, what it is that we're seeking to tackle and the roots of um, the current movements that we all are part of or support or are concerned with. So in terms of climate justice, um, I'm, I'm not 
going to be able to go into too much detail about anything with the time that I have, but just going sort of trying to go methodically through some thought processes, um, climate justice, bringing together frontline communities of resistance, recognizing that they also have solutions to in extractive industrial systems that are eroding human, humanity's um, primary means of existence on the planet. Um, and obviously in the current situation of um, ecological and climate and ecological crisis and all the other crises that go with that, um, that are not disconnected from um, the crisis of uh, racism, anti-black racism, and in, in my case, I particularly like to emphasize Afrophobia, anti-African prejudice and discrimination, um, and also the crisis in terms of pandemics, such as COVID-19. They are all, all obviously um, impacting on uh, people, not only ourselves, but our families and uh, communities around the world and other members of the human family. So um, we know that effective solutions also um, honor, build on uh, existing human peoples and also mother earth rights or so-called rights of nature, but the notion of mother earth rights in terms of um, countries like uh, Bolivia and Ecuador, I'm thinking of in particular here. Um, and the championing of community rights to energy, land, water, and food sovereignty are key aspects of tackling um, climate and ecological injustice or crisis. So when we think about climate um, justice, it is important to recognize that key groups in society um, who have been historically oppressed, marginalized, and who have experienced colonization in particular are most affected or more affected by uh, climate change and uh, ecological destruction. And then within specific groupings historically, maybe national groupings or um, in, in, a, in a European context or Western context, racially marginalized groupings, then we know within that um, other groupings such as women, um, disabled people, etc., that are um, more impacted across the world in terms of climate uh, injustice. Um, of course, we know that climate impacts can exacerbate uh, existing inequitable social conditions and therefore it's important for us to um, explore the solutions that we're engaged in and to try and ensure that uh, there is fairness and equity and that um, we have to look at not only justice um, between or among you know contemporary generations but also um, you know, intergenerational justice as well, uh, in terms of the, the world that we've inhabited and also the world that we're passing on to those that are yet to be born. Okay, so that's really what we're concerned with in, from, my, from my perspective when I think about uh, climate justice. So recognizing that there are a, a plethora of movements that come together um, around tackling 
uh, climate injustice from different perspectives. And that is really, really key because it's not just a one size uh, solution that's gonna fit all because of the, the nature of injustice. So um, I just have this slide here that um, promotes a study of uh, Jason Hickel, um, who does a lot of research on these issues of uh, you know, climate uh, injustice, ecological crisis, linked to the notion of colonization and also um, some aspects of uh, reparation. And so he uh, took part in this study, he conducted this study that is known as Colonizing the Atmosphere, which tells us that as of 2015, the USA was responsible for 40% of excess global CO2 emissions. Shouldn't, that's no surprise. I know to any of you, uh, the European Union, in terms of the 28 countries, was responsible for 29%. G8 nations, including the USA, EU, uh, Russia, Japan, and Canada, were responsible for 85% and countries classified by the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change as what's known as Annex One nations, those being the most industrialized countries were responsible for 90% of excess emissions. The Global North was responsible for 92%. By contrast, most countries in the Global South were within their boundary fair shares, including India and China, um, uh, global according to new analysis by Hickel uh, in the study quantifying national responsibility for climate breakdown, which was actually published in the September 2020 issue of The Lancet on planetary health. And a quote from him is that we know that the global south suffers more than 90% of the costs of climate breakdown, and 98% of the deaths associated with climate breakdown due to fires, floods, droughts, famine, disease, displacement, and so on. Uh, so he goes on to say, so just like under colonialism, the North is benefiting at the expense of the South. And of course, that doesn't dismiss that within the global North, you, you have the global South too, in terms of um, racially marginalized communities um, from the majority world who are disproportionately impacted. So the simple fact of the matter is, that countries and people who are least responsible for causing climate change are the ones who are suffering most from its effects, especially uh, regarding food uh, insecurity and nutrient uh, deficiencies. So thinking about that within the context of um, tackling, um, you know, climate injustice in terms of the climate justice movement and reparations, it's a huge problem, a huge um, intergenerational structural and systemic problem that we have to tackle. And of course, that will be done in a multiplicity of ways. So that was just a bit of a soundscape from actually me at the last uh, Extinction Rebellion rebellion uh, activity in September of last year, uh, making the links between the current ecocide 
and genocide and colonization. And that's important in terms of looking at not only reparations or reparatory justice, as I prefer to say, but also how do we develop effective solutions in terms of tackling or stopping the current harms of extractivism today that are um, proliferating at genocide and ecocide against, obviously all of us are impacted, but to different degrees. And, and so in the Pan-African perspective of the Stop the Angamizi Recharge Genocide Ecocide campaign, that I am part of, uh, this warrants an overstanding that in stopping the harms of genocide and ecocide, that we not only have to emancipate and save ourselves, but this process of stopping the harms today and repairing the damage by way of reparations must also result in the repair of humanity, the planet, and indeed the cosmos. So that was just a bit of a soundscape from actually me at the last uh, Extinction Rebellion, rebellion uh, activity in September of last year, uh, making the links between the current ecocide and genocide and colonization. And that's important in terms of looking at not only reparations or reparatory justice, as I prefer to say, but also how do we develop effective solutions in terms of tackling or stopping the current harms of extractivism today that are um, proliferating at genocide and ecocide against, obviously all of us are impacted, but to different degrees. And, and so in the Pan-African perspective of the Stop the Angamizi Recharge Genocide Ecocide campaign, that I am part of, uh, this warrants an overstanding that in stopping the harms of genocide and ecocide, that we not only have to emancipate and save ourselves, but this process of stopping the harms today and repairing the damage by way of reparations must also result in the repair of humanity, the planet, and indeed the cosmos. Now I'm going to um, skip through because I know that I've got limited time, but just to say this is just some of the preliminary context to then exploring the notion of reparations. The fact that um, as much as the fact, you know, the British government have recognized the declaration of a climate and ecological emergency, they are still funding fossil fuel projects in the global south. Um, and in particular, I'm focused here in these slides in Af on Africa. And so this is, should be disturbing to us if we are working here to try and address these issues, not only within our local communities, but also looking at the global impacts and responsibility that nations like uh, the UK have in the world. Okay, so that moves us on to talk about the notion of reparations. And there has been, within the context of reparations, a recognition of what's known as climate reparations. And there is a scholar, Dr. Keston Perry, uh, based at the University of West Ind uh, England, um, 
And this is just from a paper he gave an internationalist approach for the 21st century on climate reparations, uh, pointing out that the effects of emissions have been visible in, for instance, the hurricanes that um, precipitate wide losses to agriculture, fishery, tourism, deforestation, coastal erosion, housing, infrastructure, and the loss of black lives with the greatest impact on women and children. And he goes on to talk about some of the um, damages in terms of, um, you know, not full damages, but in terms of hurricane damage in Carib the Caribbean and small island states that show how serious this issue is for um, particular lives in particular regions, um, you know, of course, um, in, in the context of the Caribbean. So that's what this slide talks about. And he actually argues that climate reparations constitute a program for loss and damage to livelihoods, in infrastructure, and people's life chances due to ecological um, breakdown. Now, the notion of um, climate reparations and I would actually advocate the term planet repairs, which I'll go on to talk more about, is very much um, part of the substance of a case that we are supporting uh, as the Stop the Mangamizi Recharge Genocide Ecocide Campaign, which is known as the uh, Young People or Global Majority versus the UK government. And this is um, the case of three young co-claimants, Marina Trix, um, uh, Adetola Anamade, and Jerry Amakondo, who are based here in the UK, uh, but working with Plan B, the climate litigation charity, uh, have been able to initiate legal proceedings against the UK government, um, and the Chancellor and the Energy Secretary, really exploring the question of the UK's obligations to implement um, the uh, Paris Agreement domestically. And what's interesting about this case is it's, although it's, you could say it's a climate justice case, seeking to avert harm, further harm, that the UK government is doing, it's also being framed as a reparations case, but a reparations case with a difference in terms of a focus on the ecological um, and climate dimensions of reparations as they impact on these three co-claimants who are basically arguing Britain, um, UK government, uh, you are not only harming us, the younger generation, this generation, you are also harming our families back home. And our families back home, uh, we are connected to them. So we are not going to be complicit in your further uh, genocide and ecocide of our people. That is a case that um, uh, the Stop the Mangamizi campaign is supporting, working in partnership with Plan B and also the three co-claimants that you've just heard from. Um, and our role is really to support with the campaign because yes, whilst we're um, embracing um, you know, conventional court action, we know that the real victory 
is to be one in the courtroom of public opinion, the international courtroom of public opinion. The Stop the Mangamizi campaign's role is really around the extra legal dimensions of this case and how this case can catalyze communities across the world in terms of um, their own resistance and forms of rebellions. Um, I now want to make that link in terms of reparations, which so many people are hearing about and getting involved with now. Um, and I think it's important to say a bit about reparations in the full sense, because it's one of the, the most perhaps um, misunderstood, maligned, and also in danger of being co-opted um, movements at this time. And with all this crisis that's going on, this global crisis, um, of racism, anti-black racism, Afrophobia, pandemics, and obviously the climate and ecological crisis, I think it's really important that we have a, a thorough grasp of reparations. So just quickly taking us through um, international law, framework on reparations codified in 2005, um, which is known as the UN um, Guidelines and Principles on a Right to a Remedy and Reparation. It's got the long title there, which I haven't got the time to read. But the key aspects of reparations that I think, and I've kind of reordered the, the way it appears in the framework, but most people go to point three when they think about reparations. And even when um, we hear about solutions offered in terms of climate financing, it's really around measures of compensation. But that's also that's as important as that is in terms of funding adaptation and all of that. It still limits the, the, the scope of what holistic reparations are. And for me, uh, one of the most important aspects that is underemphasized in public discourse is the cessation of violations, stopping the current harms, stopping extractivism, stopping multinationals, stopping what they're doing. We've got what's happening in the Okavanga Delta. I mean, it's legion um, across Africa and other parts of the world, the way in which despite what is known and despite all these movements and student protests in the global north, um, trying to hold governments in these countries to account, what is being exported um, in terms of the global south and even in terms of some of the solutions that are being uh, uh, developed, if we don't have that global perspective, what we end up doing is actually um, replicating forms of uh, colonial domination or neo-colonialism. So the, the ending or stopping of the harm, we in the Stop the Mangamizi campaign would say stopping the Mangamizi, um, assurances and guarantees of non-repetition, which is how do we ensure that this climate and ecological crisis, um, the, the racism, um, the, the destruction of lands and um, water bodies and our environment um, and our connection to land. How do we ensure that that doesn't happen again? And that's where I think we need to be focusing our efforts when we're thinking about reparations and climate justice movement. There's the notion of restitution, which is to put a people or a group back, even in terms of environment, to a state that it should be in, but for, okay, but for colonization, uh, neo-colonization, extractivism, 
um, um, of death spoilation. And we know um, in countries like uh, Nigeria with the Niger Delta, what's happening there in terms of even how long it will take to clean up that region for quite a challenge. Uh, compensation, um, which most people think about, is not just about money but it's about putting an economic value on harm. And there are different ways in which that can be done. Uh, it might include um, notions of trade justice, um, you know, rights to kind of benefit from what's coming off of the land and, and so forth. Uh, measures of satisfaction, which are known as symbolic reparations, um, which are, um, you know, often to do with um, you know, changing curriculums and uh, street names and uh, rewriting a kind of narrative of how a people have come to be who they are or how a nation has come to be what it is. It includes measures of holding um, corporations to account. Um, so lots of lawsuits are happening trying to prevent corporations. And we've just heard about the Shell win um, as well. So that would come under that and rehabilitation, which is really looking at rehabilitation of peoples, of communities that continue to be dispossessed. So that is the UN framework, um, but in the International Social Movement for African Reparations, we also recognize what's known as the Chimwezu framework, which really looks at the notion of repair, okay? Stopping the harm and being part of uh, the repair and the repair is at many different levels repairing our relationships with not only ourselves and other members of the human family but how we interface with our environment the land that we live on um, so much that is based on appropriation um, expropriation um, and uh, furthering forms of dispossession uh, and so, you know, I'm not going to read all of the dimensions of it. Hopefully you can see the slide, but I'm just skipping through because I know I've probably only got about two or three minutes. So I've got to hurry up. Um, and then what I wanted to share with you is explaining this notion of planet repairs that you heard in particular. Uh, I think it was um, Adatola, at, say, in the Global Majority Case video. So uh, planet repairs is something that um, PARCO, the Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe that has been going for about 20 years that co-founded the Stop the Angamizi campaign have been championing for some time in terms of making these links between, um, you know, reparatory justice, environmental justice and also cognitive justice. So uh, myself and a scholar based at the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Nicola Frith, um, uh, who have been, we've both been involved with co-founding um, the International Network of Scholars and Activists for African Reparations. Um, this is a definition, planet repairs refers to the need to proceed from a standpoint of pluriversality that highlights the nexus of reparatory environmental and cognitive justice in articulating the need to repair holistically our relationship with and inseparability from the earth, environment, and the pluriverse, giving due recognition to indigenous knowledges in contrast with Western-centric enlightenment ideals that separated humanity from nature and thereby justified exploitation 
for capital accumulation. What is being advocated as, re of, as repair, um, the notion, this is big picture stuff and there's lots of things that come under this, but I think it's important to mention the big picture stuff. This is an image here of the late Ken Sarawiwa, as we know, um, uh, Agoni activist in terms of the movement for the survival of the Agoni people, um, campaigning around one of the most, uh, you know, uh, destroyed, uh, you know, sites in terms of ecocide that we have on the earth, really. And uh, Ken Sarawira, whilst he isn't recognized for that, there's another aspect of what Ken Sarawira was really advocating by way of the vision for the repaired, um, not only Agoni land and Nigeria, but how that interfaced with a repaired Africa. And he was really advocating um, the notion of forms of autonomy um, and self-determination for the Agoni peoples that was linked to a restructuring of the borders of Africa um, that had been instituted with the 1884-1885 uh, Berlin Conference. And so this notion of uh, we need to not only change the way that we relate to land and look at how colonization has not only brought about land privatization and land dispossession and um, you know all the attendant human peoples and mother earth rights that go with that, but it was also about what is the vision for a transformed um, you know, geopolitical reality that is known as Africa today and how that fits into a transformed world. And so in terms of, um, you know, the vision of, uh, the big picture vision of which many things come under it, but there is this notion, um, which is an intergenerational notion of a unified Africa, but not unified on the basis of unifying current states in the United States of Africa, which is the agenda of the current African Union, but actually an Africa that can be unified along its own indigenous um, borders and uh, ethnicities and nationalities. So this notion of a pan-African superstate, um, which is actually a union of communities, not based on the Westphalian model of statehood emanating from Germany and Western Europe, um, but this based on um, African philosophies and notions of how we live, not only in a just way with each other, but how we live in harmony with our mother earth, okay? And so this notion of a, a state, a union of communities based on the principles of Ma'at, um, recognized and epitomized in uh, the image of the goddess Ma'at, and the virtues of Ma'at in terms of truth, righteousness, harmony, balance, reciprocity, reci uh, and uh, justice and order, but also this combining this notion of Ma'at with Ubuntu, which recognizes that we are people through other people and our humanity is best expressed with not only how we treat ourselves, but how we treat others. And the notion of Ubuntu is not just people-centered, it's also about how we relate to our Supreme Mother or our Earth Mother um, in terms of Mother Earth. And so this is what is being advocated. Um, and I guess 
uh, I, in terms of us in the diaspora who are linking into this, and this is very much connected to um, repair uh, in, in what we're championing. So there is a notion of um, satellite communities of Ma'atubuntu man that are Ma'atubuntu jammers and Ubuntu jammer in Kiswahili, really speaking to this um, collective <laughs> communities and villagization. And um, that's what is being advocated. So you have communities that are going to be energy sufficient, food sufficient, um, working on the land um, across across the world, linking in organically to the mother continent. And imagine that transformation happening. Um, so that kind of deals with the issues of denial of sovereignty and so forth. But I believe I need to stop need to now. Um, to allow for the questions that Sai is going to answer and where I can talk more about some of the concrete work, other concrete work that I'm um, engaged uh, in around um, planet repairs in particular as a way of um, tackling uh, climate uh, and ecological injustice and, um, uh, you know, reparations at the same time. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Esther. Um, yeah, I appreciate obviously there's a lot more you can uh, contribute on these, these issues and, and you have a, a whole other 30 odd slides there. So yeah, we, we'll, we'll get to as much of that as we can and, uh, and some questions. We're now going to begin a, a conversation between myself and Esther before the, the Q&A. Um, and I guess um, leading on from, from that idea of linking internationally, which we've managed to do a little of, it would be great to um, to hear, hear you talk, Esther, a little bit more about some of those links that you have internationally. And I guess particularly um, with one of the groups who I'm not sure you have mentioned in, in this talk, um, but the, the, the affiliation you have with, with XR um, and via the XR ISN, the XR Internationalist Solidarity Network. Um, I, I've had many conversations with you um, around around your work, and particularly on on uh, on this um, this grouping. Um, uh, and I know that there's also been uh, some misunderstandings around uh, the nature of this work. There's obviously, as we're aware ourselves, and have critiqued ourselves, that there's a lot of critique, um, partly more, a lot of it justified, um, you know, around the. The lack of racial politics um, within XR, um, but this grouping, as, as you you have said many times, um, you and uh, you and Clue and and African Heritage Network for the very beginning of the formation of XR, and so you you've been intervening, been very aware of the racial dynamics, the, the policing issues, and everything else. Mm. But I, I'm not sure many people who who are organising. Um, our communities um, have the full understanding of the tactics and of the mm. that you're, you're employing by uh, working in affinity with, with a group such as um, XR. So, mm. if, if you, yeah. Sure. So, do you want me to speak about that, um, which is a really important issue? Um, now, just to preface what I say, um, the, we had an involvement with XR um, before XR launched its declaration of rebellion in October uh, 
2018. Um, we were actually contacted by a member of XR um, probably around the July of 2018 as the Stop the Mangamizi campaign. They contacted us and I got an email um, because I was, you know, responding to monitoring the email and it was from somebody called Matthew who said, oh, I'm looking at your website and the work that you do as a campaign and I can see that you have um, the Stop the Mangamizi campaign petition action learners. I wanted to know, could I become one, but I'm a white man. So obviously when you get an email like that, which we don't, you know, we're an African heritage community campaign. Um, so it was an interesting email to get and I was quite curious by it. So entered into a dialogue and the long and short of it is that the person Matthew said to us, look, I want, I think that um, we have something in common in that you are interested on, on tackling ecocide um, and genocide as a dimension of ecocide and vice versa. And as Extinction Rebellion, we are tackling these issues in terms of the climate and ecological crisis. But actually, we recognize that people in Africa, in particular, are most impacted and other parts of the global south. So that was the humble approach to us which led us to then um, begin uh, a form of dialogue with the XR co-founders. And we put to them many of the um, criticisms and everything that you hear about XR, of which you're all familiar, I don't need to repeat. We put that to them and we also put to them our own skepticism about working with this white-led movement, um, recognizing the narrowness of its construction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyhow, what we found from the co-founders of which there were 11, okay, founded in Slough. So a limited kind of um, geographical and, and perhaps worldview as well. Um, but they said to us, all right, we want to do an open letter um, which was published in the Guardian actually in December, 2020 at now to prevent an environmental catastrophe. And what they did is they said to us, how would you suggest we frame this issue? So we joined on to this letter that was signed by a hundred, you know, academics and scientists and community leaders across the world. Um, and we included particular texts and the text that we included in it was that we further call on concerned global citizens to rise up and organize against current complacency in their particular context, including indigenous people's rights advocacy, decolonization and reparatory justice. So joining the global movement that's now rebelling against extinction. So the commonality was, as the Stop the Mangamizi campaign, we are also rebelling you know, um, against extinction not just in terms of, you know, uh, non-human species, but our very selves, the attempt to, to, to make us extinct, you know, through genocide. The fact that we're survivors of genocide doesn't mean that, you know, it, there aren't attempts to make us extinct in terms of depopulation, which actually still continues. So we made it very clear that many of us around the world and the communities that we work with in the global south could not um, tackle climate, we, you know, it's not a separate issue, that people were already engaged in struggles, you know, climate justice, racial justice, um, you know, sovereign, food sovereignty, land struggles, 
and that those had to be the bedrock of how you engaged communities who were uh, not white, the majority of whom, if they could find XR relevant. And so we went to the first rebellion day in October, the second one, um, the end of November, and we then began to enter into dialogue with um, XR co-founders, and we agreed that we needed to have our own space uh, because we were concerned about the international dimensions of this climate and ecological crisis. Um, we said it's fine for you all to worry about what might happen in 15, 20 years time. Um, but for many of our people, it's happening right now. The genocide is right now. We haven't got the time to wait. And uh, that space was created, co-created with the support of XR co-founders who understood reparations in the sense of redistribution of um, resources in particular that have been extracted from the global south because we made it very clear a lot of the resources that you're working with don't belong to you they come from extraction and uh, extractivism and therefore if exile wanted to do justice they, they needed to facilitate a redistribution of resources back into the global south which is what was agreed and the setting up of XRISN the XR International Solidarity Network was a form of reparation in their mind because that's how we explained it um, and so we have a mandate and the mandate is very clear um, so although these other issues have been going on what we've always said to people is um, you know don't assume that everyone in XR is white some of us got involved because we know um, that eco-fascism is real okay uh, and it is being unleashed against our people under the guise of tackling the climate and ecological crisis. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure within XR, as in many other spaces, there are eco-fascist tendencies. However, we also met other tendencies that recognize that indigenous people needed to get their sovereignty back, African people needed to get their sovereignty back, that actually there is a debt, not a money debt, not just a money debt, not just an ecological debt, not just a climate debt, that there is a, a holistic debt owed to uh, peoples of the global south and their diaspora communities in the global north. And so um, that was what was the space that we carved out. And we recognize, look, a lot of people um, who joined XR, who were rebelling, we saw that as positive. We saw it as positive that white people were taking on this government, recognizing the genocidal impact of the policies of this government, because a lot of our people are not in a position to do that voluntarily. So if they want to take on their own people, that is fine. And let me tell you, at all the rebellion days, we were never, it was never, in fact, we were shielded from arrest. It was made very clear that global South activists, uh, diaspora community activists should not um, be arrestable, okay? So these are the narratives that don't get heard. Anyway, we formed XRISN, our mandate, is to foster mutually respectful, cooperative and beneficial connections with people from existing grassroots communities of resistance on the front lines of the climate and ecological crisis in both the Global South and Global North, who are working on environmental justice so that one, 
these perspectives of rebellion, because the other thing we had to say to them is, look, you haven't started no rebellion. Our people have been rebelling against this system for centuries, okay? And that was an educational point because a lot of them didn't know. They thought, oh, we're best thing since sliced bread. And it's only through that interaction and dialogue. So it's ensuring that XR know that there are other struggles that might not be framing themselves as climate justice struggles, environmental struggles, or so forth, but people defending land, um, stopping extractivism, uh, extractivism, stopping multinational corporations, um, you know, those who are asserting, you know, food sovereignty, all that multiplicity of struggle that's going on. We were saying to Exile, there's a lot that you need to learn from us. And the second aspect of our mandate is ensuring the two-way learning. So that dialogue exchange. Now, concretely, what have we got out of it? Why are we there? Um, we in the XRISN have been supported in terms of resources, okay? Let me be very clear, um, to support three uh, partner networks in the Global South, the way the majority of the money goes, and these are an XR Affinity All African Network. Now these are affinity networks. They're not setting up XR groups because we've said to our people in XR, sorry, our people don't need you. They don't need a, co a colonial approach of white saviors coming to save us. Our people are saving themselves, but they can be in affinity around the basis of any common interest. So the one in Africa, which is called XRAN, there's an XR affinity network for Abia Yala, so-called Americas, called XRISE. And there's an XR affinity network of Asia um, uh, called XRANA. And they're based in India, Ghana, and Colombia, respectively. And if you know anything about Colombia in particular, one of the places where a lot of our people um, indigenous people, so-called Afro-descendants are being killed uh, for being land defenders, human rights defenders. Uh, and one of our flagship projects in um, Africa is uh, what's known as the Miano Asaseya um, Community Educational uh, Complex and Sanctuary, which is a, a, a community space that is being built, purpose-built, to provide a sanctuary to persecuted activists um, across West Africa. And that is also promoting um, indigenous um, methods of averting the climate and ecological crisis, indigenous knowledge systems and so forth. And in the UK, we've also been able to establish uh, what's known as the GOPIS, the Gaia House of People to People's International Solidarity, because we're very clear that unless there is real genuine international solidarity, we have to ensure that those who are here, who are often, whether they're complicit, whether they don't know, um, are, are, are end up um, being utilized or benefiting from the dispossession of our people and other communities in the global south. So it's an international solidarity center that is led by us. Um, and that's the work that we do. It's not about street protests for everybody. That has its place but it's not the prefigurating of the new world that we're much more interested in doing. And so we know that 
um, that cannot happen unless we get a groundswell of people resisting and rebelling against the system. And in Africa, that needs to happen. In the Caribbean, that needs to happen. And people rebel in the way that they feel uh, best they can rebel. And a lot of rebellion has been about not just condemning what is here, but it has been about co-creating and constructing the new or the alternative. Real talk. Esther, that was, that was amazing. We knew, we knew you'd bring the fire. Uh, thank you for speaking so honestly on those all those issues uh, taking us there. Um, obviously, like we say, there's there's so much more Esther can bring. There's lots of um, Esther's talks on various subjects, like say on YouTube. Um, we're going to be engaging with you on the on many issues, continuing these these issues of climate justice, of reparations, intertwining the, the two, the pempanzie, the stitching together. We're going to be um, obviously making progress with the Leeds Declaration as well. And you've inspired us all. You keep inspiring us. Um, rest assured, also um, that you know, as, as you you give and you always sign off with your servant. Um, you know, another another common thing which I resist is, is the kind of queens and kings thing. I, I know <laughs> yeah. you see yourself more as a servant, which which I you know, yeah. all kings and queens at all. And 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 I, I respect you for the sacrifice. And and, I, and rest, like I say, rest assured, it is is valued by so many of us you've, you've given so many people who i'm sure you don't even know so much uh, fire uh, to continue this fight and we salute you um esther i'm sure everyone else would wish to um share thanks and there's uh, lots of messages as well um saying so um just grateful we will continue the journey we will uh, move towards the um the march ubuntu dunia um and uh, we're going to now close with Maladies. I trust that um, you can just bear with my voice alone. Um, one of the things that I was asked to do was to um, summarize Esther. No, that's impossible. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope that um, all the words that she has spoken have thoroughly resonated through um, all hearts and ears, um, and that within the bodies that have heard her words, that they will, you know, go away and really process and work on, because it's not enough just to remember and praise and, and sing about, but to actually act on um, as she herself has spent her life acting on. There's a, an African-American uh, group called Sweet Honey in the Rock, and they have um, some words in a song which say, we all, every one of us, have to come home again. You know, we were born of this earth, we remain anchored to this earth. Our very substance is from this earth. Yet somehow when we have the opportunity, we just abandon the earth to whatever we feel is far from and above whatever is the blackness and brownness of all our origins. But how on earth can that profit us? How on earth can it benefit us? 
When is there a benefit of losing one's mother in search of glass, concrete and metal? How can we say we can self-actualize in a cloud that's located in virtual skies? It seems to me that we cannot do better than to thoroughly decolonize, to cleanse and repair our minds and to see and feel beyond our mortal eyes. And to do this, we have to begin to recognize the mothers, the sisters, the daughters of the movement to liberate, repair and heal. If we cannot come back to that, and I'm so glad, um, Sai, that you asked that, um, that final question and Esther's response to that, because that is the home that we have to come back to. How, no matter how difficult it is to countenance the idea that our roots are our black mothers, sisters and daughters. That's what we always have to come back to. And you know, if we cannot elevate and support and enshrine what these women represent, then we are in self-denial. The 13th recommendation is actually the foundation of any sane movement towards healing the trauma within. It is how justice, preparatory justice is articulated. To fully acknowledge the colonial legacies of all harm, understanding that colonialism and coloniality was and is the seeking of an overarching power and control of all that one has objectified as being outside of oneself. That is actually some kind of definition of madness, right? Because we, as Africans, recognize we belong to the earth. There is nothing outside of that. So then to seek to, to, to make things be outside of that so that you can control it, is actually um, a movement towards a cancer. What reparation is reparatory justice is seeking is an elimination of that cancer effectively, right? It's a movement towards a sanity that we haven't known on this planet for a very long time, yeah? So the, the, again, the 13th recommendation is talking about the international proportions of it and connecting the local, what is referred to as local and global, because you know everywhere you are is your local. And so everywhere else becomes a global. So it's the very Ubuntu idea and concept, right? To connect the local and global in profound and significant ways, yeah? Which is to recognize meaningfully how to express with body, mind, and soul, the solidarity that can and has to make a difference if reparatory justice is to be achieved. Racial Justice Network has also at its helm Penny Wangari Jones, another black woman who may be overlooked. Yeah, who is embracing this sanity. And it's, you know, there's no, it's not an accident that at these important locations, the helm of these important locations in time and space are African women our African heritage woman. It is not accidental, okay? So let's not forget that, 
and let's understand our roots so that we can move towards everything that Esther has exhorted in our um, precious time with uh, her this evening. So very many thanks. I'm not even going to attempt to summarize anything you say. I'm sure it's resonated through everyone. Um, so blessings to all that we move with that power forward. Ashe.